Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 145 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at carbon taxing. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I'd like to remind you that if you're a patron of this podcast, you can get some nice little goodies, including free copies of my books, patron-only episodes of podcasts, season-ending summary episodes, and from time to time, we've got merchandise and stuff like that, as well as codes to give you premium access to ZapMap's app. So why not check out our Patreon page and see if you might like to sign up. What have you got to lose? Our main topic of discussion today is carbon taxing. As I say at the start of every episode, this is a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. One aspect that I tend to not focus on too much, though, is the renewable side of things. So to remedy that, what I want to focus on today is carbon tax. So what is a carbon tax and why is it important? A carbon tax is a tax levied on the carbon emissions required to produce goods and services. Carbon taxes are intended to make the hidden social costs of carbon emissions, which are otherwise felt only in indirect ways like more severe weather events, visible. In this way, they're designed to reduce carbon dioxide, CO2 emissions, by increasing prices. This both decreases demand for such goods and services and incentivizes efforts to make them less carbon intensive. In its simplest form, a carbon tax covers only carbon dioxide emissions. However, they can also cover other greenhouse gases, such as methane or nitrous oxide, by calculating their global warming potential relative to CO2. So how does that work in practice? The design of a carbon tax involves two primary factors, the level of the tax and the use of the revenue. To calculate the level of the tax, you need to have a figure for the social cost of carbon. This is the cost of the externalities of the carbon pollution. So this includes the cost associated with medical expenses for people who are suffering from particulate matter health issues, the cost of flooding related to adverse weather events caused by climate change, the cost of additional cleanup of oil spills, etc. Stanford University scientists have estimated the social cost of carbon to be upwards of $200 per tonne. More conservative estimates pin the cost at around $50. The second aspect of the tax is that of putting the money raised back into the community. However, as this is usually controlled by the government in control at the time, the whole issue of using the money is a very political thing. Some governments like to use the money to increase discretionary spending, such as buying new buildings and making them into social housing. Or it can be used for reducing budget deficits elsewhere. The problem with doing this is that there will always be members of society who feel that the money is being spent on the wrong thing. Furthermore, certain applications of the money can be deemed to be regressive. This means the amount of tax decreases as a taxable asset increase. In other words, A regressive income tax is one where higher earning people pay less tax than lower earning people proportionally. An example of this is when the government increases the fuel duty on petrol. If you're someone who earns a small amount and your running costs for the car increase as a result, 
you'll be a lot more concerned than someone with a high income who runs two or three cars and isn't worried that they now pay £100 to fill their tank rather than £80. This happened in France in 2018, causing riots and protests. So what a lot of governments do is they use the carbon tax income to offset other taxes. This means there's no economic benefit for the government to having a carbon tax. And people who are impacted by the carbon tax will often see a decrease in their income tax as a result, for example. The problem with this is that the net impact to the wallet is minor. This means there's no incentive to reduce the amount of carbon being used, which is, after all, the main reason for having a carbon tax. The one benefit of this is that a carbon tax can be implemented with minimal economic impact to a person's lifestyle. What a carbon tax is, is what's known in economic circles as a nudge. You look at something and you say, oh, the price of this litre of engine oil has gone up by 15%. Maybe I'll wait another few months before I change my engine oil. Then net result is less oil bought, which is good if that's what you're aiming for. As a general rule, carbon taxes are applied to fossil fuel products, oil, gas, mineral oil, diesel, lubricants, etc. After all, it's the carbon in these fossil fuels that's been released. So it makes sense that this is what's taxed, right? However, the problem isn't limited to fossil fuels. If we really want to change behaviour, we need to be looking at adding a carbon tax element to all carbon producing products. Meat, for example, produces large amounts of carbon dioxide equivalent in the rearing of cattle, the raising of cattle field, the transport of cattle to the slaughterhouse, and the transportation of processed meat to the shops. Each step in that process should have a carbon tax attached to it. In certain cases, such as the transportation, this will already be covered under, under a carbon tax on fuel, but the others are rarely considered. There might be some allusion to the carbon associated with actually rearing the cattle, the fuel needed to heat barns, etc. But the carbon associated with raising food crops for cattle is rarely mentioned in these calculations. The main problem, of course, is that things like this are politically bad. Your local politician wanting to get votes in a rural area isn't going to advocate for increasing the taxes on local farmers. So he or she won't. And that means that the carbon tax won't get implemented. Likewise, a politician in a predominantly urban or suburban town isn't going to advocate for something that will increase the price of food on constituents who might be living hand to mouth, so it won't get done. Additionally, one of the big problems is that nobody can really settle on how big a carbon tax should be. I mentioned at the top of the show that figures range between $50 a tonne and $200 per tonne. In places where carbon tax looks to be wanted, people are obviously pushing towards the lower end of that. But the problem with such a low figure is that it doesn't fill the need it has to. Adding a carbon tax has to serve two purposes. Firstly, it has to change behaviour. If it becomes much more expensive to use something which is a high carbon tax, the theory is that usage of it will reduce. Secondly, for those who still refuse to reduce the usage, the cost to carry on that behaviour should increase. It's similar to congestion charging or low emission zones. The aim of congestion charging is to incentivise drivers not to bring their vehicles into the congestion zone. A fee is charged every time they do so. For those who still want to enter the fee, there's no physical barrier. They just have to elect to pay. Over time, the fee will increase. In London, for example, it's already gone from £11.50 on a workday and free on a weekend to £15 seven days a week. The low emission zone is the same. The idea is to place a levy on any vehicle which produces more than a certain amount of pollution. It covers a much wider area of London and operates 24-7, 365. 
Christmas days excluded. The fee is £12.50, but again, that will go up over time. Again, the idea of charges is to make people think twice about taking their vehicle to a certain place. By all accounts, it's been very successful in London, so much so that other large towns and cities are starting to adopt them. Oxford has recently implemented a pilot and the clean air zone is being introduced into Greater Manchester in a bid to reduce harmful air pollution in the region. But what's also key about charges like this, and the carbon tax is no different, is that something has to be done with the money. In the case of London, all of it goes back to improving transport in the city. So the mon- some of the money has been channeled into alternate forms of transport. The new bike lanes and the Boris bikes are two examples of things that have been funded either wholly or partly from the congestion charge as are things like the night tubes. The idea is to make it easier for people to not need to use their car when coming into London. So the ultimate issue with carbon tax is this. The people who will benefit from it the most, i.e. those who live in pollution-ridden places such as cities and near industrial areas, probably won't be able to pay for it. And those who can pay for it, the industrialists and entrepreneurs whose businesses are polluting the atmosphere, I'm looking at you, big oil, will pay it without any issue, then add the price onto their products. The pollution won't reduce, and there'll be limited benefit to those who need it. But somehow or other, there has to be some sort of method to make a carbon tax work. The other side of the coin, though, is incentives. Take the ULED zone, for example. As a driver in an electric car, I've never had to pay for entering that zone. What's more, when I park in that zone, there are certain councils who will reduce my parking fee to virtually zero because I have an EV. Now, if you were someone wanting to be incentivized to get out of a dirty diesel and into an electric vehicle, wouldn't zero ULS charge and almost free parking move you along that path a bit quicker than, say, a congestion charge? It must be said, however, that congestion charging and ULS charging are trying to accomplish two different things. One is cutting traffic, the other is cutting pollution. The other issue is that people can understand short-term pain more easily than long-term pain. Anyone with a brain can understand that if you pay the carbon tax now, the long-term cost of repairing climate change will still be quite high. But they rarely acknowledge that if you don't pay the carbon tax, the long-term cost of repairing climate change will be astronomical. It will manifest itself in increased insurance premiums, higher food prices, higher energy prices, lower resource availability, higher housing costs. Over the long term, the net impact on any individual will be much greater than the immediate impact of a carbon tax. When it comes to incentives though, we've already discussed the fact that the carbon tax can be offset against income tax, so the net gain is minimal, which means that incentives are not that easy to come by. And so to summarise, there's absolutely a need to have some sort of carbon tax. The economist Stephen Levitt from University of Chicago and co-author of the book Freakonomics is very much in favour of this. But as we already mentioned, getting the level right is key to making this work. Also, making sure the tax is applied to the people who deserve it, i.e. the carbon emitters such as BP, Shell and Aramco, rather than the end users who would pay more for their goods if they included the carbon tax. If we look at carbon capture as a way of reducing carbon being put into the air, there are many ways of potentially doing this, none of which have been found to be quite effective as yet. And as we all know, if it's not cost effective, people aren't going to do it. So there's still a way to go on making this all work together. But if we're going to reach net zero by 2050, it's something we'll need to sort out pretty sharpish. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Pure electric cars now account for every ninth new model entering Western roads. 
That's right, the monthly share of new zero emission battery electric vehicle passenger car registrations on a 12 month annualized basis has surpassed the 11% milestone, latest data revealed. Schmidt Automotive Research forecast battery electric sales in Western Europe will jump this year to 1,575,000 for a market share of 14%, up from 11% last year. Overall, the largest market for electric vehicles is China, with the USA, Germany and France ahead of the UK in sixth place. According to Statista Mobility Market Outlook, global EV sale revenues are expected to hit $384 billion in 2022, more than double the 2020 figures. In 2023, revenues are projected to jump by almost $79 billion to $462 billion. And by 2025, EV car sales are set to reach nearly $630 billion worldwide. That's some pretty impressive figures, I think you'll agree. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging and participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in-car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So You've Gone Electric is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So You've Gone Renewable is also available on Amazon for 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you got to this point by tweeting me at MusingZV with the words, it's like a tax, but on carbon. Hashtag, if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks, as always, to my co-founder, Simon. You know he has a fear of sticking plasters. Hates them with a passion. When I asked him what the issue was, he confessed that it's less to do with the plasters themselves than the removal. His mother was one of those who went for the slow, prolonged approach. This didn't work for Simon. He wanted her to do the short, sharp shock. The other issue is that people can understand short-term pain more easily than long-term pain. Thanks for listening. Bye.